All right, the book of Titus tonight. Titus chapter 1. You saw there the slide, if you're paying attention during the announcements, about uh, Theme and Vision Sunday. Um, The next year's theme was actually up there. It was just blurred out. So you couldn't tell. you got to show up on the 6th of January, and uh, there will be all kinds of stuff. The bulletins will have the new theme on it. The banner in the lobby will be changed out. Obviously, the artwork, and then we'll hear a sermon on explaining uh, what all that means, and uh, we're uh, fired up about it. So, um, And then in the evening of that, uh, of that day, we're going to be casting a vision for 2019. And, and, uh, and beyond, some things that we're going, going to improve on, some things we'll start. Uh, we talked about renovating the building uh, earlier in the year. We're going to lay out the plan on how we're going to raise the funds to do that in that uh, evening message. And so uh, I'm really excited about that. I don't want to get past Christmas and, and all of the things that our church is going to be doing with the Christmas holidays to present the gospel uh, but um, um, I am excited about 2019. New beginnings are always good. Amen? So I um, um, want to just, uh, just backtrack here a little bit. Last Sunday morning was great, wasn't it? And uh, good to see the gospel given forth and just so many testimonies. There have been more testimonies that have come out even since the Sunday evening uh, service where some testimonies were shared and and uh, you're going to hear a couple of those this Sunday coming up, uh, Sunday evening coming up, uh, during our outreach testimony time. But just what a wonderful time it was. A lot of hard work went into that, and, um, and uh, we, uh, it turned out, I thought it turned out exceptional. So to everyone who invested in that, thank you, thank you, thank you for the work you put into it. Titus 1, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to open uh, by reading the first four verses. This is a shorter book. Uh, only three chapters long. I believe we'll get through the whole thing tonight. Let's, let's get going here. Verse number one, Paul is servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word toward, uh, through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The title of the uh, Bible study here is Standing for Truth in a Culture of Lies. Standing for Truth in a Culture of Lies or in a Lying Culture. Let's uh, let's pray. Help us tonight, as we, Lord, as we uh, dive in and try to understand the book. Thank you for the time of prayer we've already had as we've lifted up the needs of many in our church who... Uh, are in great need, uh, or those outside of our church that uh, need to make their way to you. And Lord, we pray that those prayers would have been heard and answered. And Lord, as we turn our attention to the Bible, may it uh, uh, help us as we understand it to grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, uh, Titus. Titus uh, is the third of the uh, pastoral epistles. We've looked at First and Second Timothy. And now we're looking at Titus. I'm guessing that Titus must have been a little further along in his ability to pastor than Timothy, because Timothy needed two books, whereas Titus only needed one, and he only needed like half a book, because there's only three chapters here. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, uh, this is the third of those uh, in order in the Bible. And Titus, he had his hands full with a large uh, task. Now, by reading of the book of Titus and then the two other passages in the Bible that talk about Titus, I get the idea that Paul probably was the one that led Titus to Christ. He calls him his son in the faith, and that's generally a sign that Paul probably had led him to the Lord and trained him. So we learn from some of the other places in the Bible that Titus was Greek or born in the country of Greece. He was a disciple of Christ. He was trained by Paul. And while it might seem odd for me to mention this, uh, it, uh, because of uh, much of the topic of conversation of that day, it was necessary. Titus was uncircumcised. You say, well, Pastor TMI, that's too much information. Don't need to know that about him. And uh, why is that important? Well, 
Because back in the culture of when the Bible was written, circumcised and uncircumcised was a big, big deal. It just was. It was talked about and preached about. Uh, it was the way of the Judaism faith or the Jewish faith. And uh, the, the uh, folks that were coming in and messing up uh, church doctrine were coming in behind Paul and saying, Oh, you, you Gentiles are getting saved. You need to be circumcised. And uh, so Paul had... Timothy gets circumcised, but he, he allowed Titus to not be circumcised. Now, why was that? And I would say, you go back to the passage in 1 Corinthians, that talks about being all things to all men, yet without sin. Where was Titus going to pastor? Well, he was going to pastor on the island of Crete, and uh, in a place where nobody was really circumcised, except for a few Jewish folks who lived there, but for the most part, the people of Crete were Gentiles, and so it wasn't really relevant, and it may have even caused uh, uh, Titus to become a stumbling block to those he was uh, trying to reach. And so, um, uh, let me kind of show you uh, uh, on a map where Crete is. So, um, if you look real close, you can see a little dot. You see where, um, uh, let's see, Italy is, and then to the to the uh, west. That'd be to the east. the east of Italy, down where he's circling around. There's the island. Let's bring us in a little bit closer. Uh, the next slide there. That is Crete. It's still on the map, but it hasn't been swallowed up. It uh, is the same island today that it was back in Bible times. All right, more advanced technology and all that. Uh, but that is Crete. That is where Titus was doing his work. As this letter was written, in a sense, you could call Titus a missionary. He was from Greece, sent to, sent to Crete, left, left on Crete, the island of Crete, to help work with a bunch of house-type churches and make sure that they were right. So that was Titus's task. It was his task to go into this town, and, or this island rather, and straighten out the churches to train pastors to run those churches so that they would do it right. Let's jump into the outline here this evening. Uh, you can find that on the back of your prayer bulletin. I encourage you to take notes. Number one, notice Crete's reputation. Crete's reputation. So uh, if all you know is the book of Titus from reading it and you don't do any digging into the background and understanding a little bit about the culture of where Titus was going, some of uh, what's said in the chapter is totally missed and goes right over your head. Letter A, the island's cultural hero, Zeus. The island's cultural hero, Zeus. Look with me at Titus chapter 1, verse 5. You're not going to find Zeus's name, but uh, we'll get into that in a minute. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. So there were a bunch of little house churches in Crete, but there were a lot of things that were just out of order. There were a lot of areas where they were really, really struggling. Now, uh, Cretans claim, even to this day, that Zeus was born on their island. They claim that he was born on the island. In fact, if you go to Crete on vacation, there are two separate mountains, that uh, caves and two separate caves in the mountains that both claim that Zeus was born there. You can go to two separate places and see that. And uh, the Cretans were then and still are today very, very proud of the fact that Zeus was born on their island. You have that picture of Zeus. Go ahead and throw that up there for me. If you don't know who Zeus is, there, there he is and all of his uh, stone wonder. Zeus was allegedly born around 700 B.C., somewhere in the 7th century B.C., and he is infamous for being a seducing liar. A seducing liar. In fact, even those who study uh, Greek mythology and all that will tell you in a, in a proud way that Zeus was a seductive liar. He had many, many children with many, 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 many different women, and he was very seductive in getting women to procreate with him. And uh, he, would, he would lie right through his teeth to get what he wanted and grew to great power because of it. Zeus's reputation uh, during the time this letter was written uh, to Titus, Zeus, uh, uh, Zeus's reputation had become the accepted culture on the island of Crete or amongst the Cretans. How bad was this seductive lying culture mixed in to the, the Cretan culture? Well, this is fascinating. The Greek word kretizo, 
K-R-E-T-I-Z-O. Kretizo meant to be a Cretan. It also meant to be a liar. Kretizo, to be a Cretan, to be a liar. <laughs> uh, you ever had your name turn into a verb? You ever, you know, you ever heard of that happening? You know, uh, uh, don't, don't do that. You, you don't want that to happen to you. Well, uh, if someone called you a Cretan, they were calling you a liar. And you would think that the Cretans maybe would take exception to that. No, they were proud of it. They were proud of it. They knew that they were liars. They knew that they were seducers. And they had no issue with it. So, who was the cultural hero on the island? Well, it was then and it still is today. It was Zeus. And all of Zeus's bad traits uh, had been adopted and mixed in and baked into their culture. Letter B. Notice the church's Christian culture. The church's Christian culture uh, hero, or the church's Christian hero, rather, is Jesus. Look back at Titus chapter 1 and verse number 1 and 2. Now that you know that to be a Christian is to be a liar, and you know that Paul knew that when he wrote the book, now look at verses 1 and 2. Paul is servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, verse 2, and hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You know what he was saying to these uh, Christian Christians? He was saying, you got to leave Zeus behind and you've got to tie yourself in to a God that not only... That not only doesn't like lying, he cannot lie. He cannot lie. There is a contrast here. And, uh, you know, um, uh, one thing I have learned about humanity is that we're really good at trying to take uh, uh, those who are uh, in di- that are diametrically opposed to each other and trying to bring them together. All right? How many of you here know what theistic evolution is? Theistic evolution? You know, what the- you know where theistic evolution came from? Well, let me first explain what it is. Theistic evolution is the belief that God used the evolutionary process to bring about the world. You know where that came from? Some compromising person wanted to take the hand of Christians and the hand of of atheists and make them hold hands. That's where theistic evolution came from. And you see that all over the place. There are people that want to take the music of, of Satan... And the, the, the word, the words of, of a gospel song and put the two together and try to get them to hold hands. The two are diametrically opposed to each other and they should not be brought together. And we see this all the time. Well, that was what had happened here at the church in Crete, the churches in Crete. The, they had tried to take the Christian culture and the Zeus culture and get them to come together. And you had a bunch of churches that were a mixed bag of, of Greek mythology type things in Christianity. So Crete's reputation. Number two, notice Titus's responsibilities. Titus's responsibilities. So Titus arrives on the island, or he's left on the island by Paul, to be the pastor of the churches, the bishop of the churches. The bishop is another word for pastor in the Bible. And to oversee them and to get them all going in the right direction. And so he had really, according to this book, he had two main responsibilities. Letter A, a letter A, remove false teachers. Remove false teachers. Look at verse number 10 of Romans chapter 1. It says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. There's that, that, there's that seductive way. Deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, that would be the Jews that were there, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So what was their purpose? What was their motive in teaching this bad doctrine? So they could get rich. They were in it for the money. Verse number 11 uh, or rather, verse number 12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I got to wondering as I was reading that this week, who is this prophet of, of their own that called the Cretans liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies? And uh, come to find out, if you look at the Wikipedia page of a man named Epimenides, Epimenides, uh, you find that he calls them, uh, he calls them, can you see that? 
that might be too far away. On the left there is a paragraph of, uh, of his writing in Greek. The translation is there in English, and it says, oh, he made it where well, we could read it. Very good. They fashion a tomb for you, holy and high one, speaking of Zeus. Christians, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead, you live and abide forever. This is Epimenides, and Paul quotes Epimenides here in this passage. One of their, he had been dead at this time, but one of their heroes, one of their own heroes that was born in Crete, said of the Cretans, they're liars, they're evil beasts, and they have idle bellies or slow bellies. And so Paul turned around and quoted them there. And it wasn't just the people that live on the island. It was some of the teachers that were even in the church. And Paul said, this has got to be dealt with. Now, there are some other uh, verses here that are really good, and, and I want to look at them with you here. Look at verse number 13. It says, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men uh, that turn the truth. Now, if you don't have verse 15 memorized, I would encourage you to memorize it. It says there, unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them uh, that are defiled, uh, defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. If you have teenage boys, they need to memorize that verse. Because there's a lot of uh, innuendo-type humor that flies around with, with teenage boys, and teenage girls for that matter, and, uh, and, can, uh, and can trickle into uh, an immature heart. And you say something around someone like that, and no matter what it is, they find a way to make it dirty. They find a way to uh, twist it. And make it wrong, right? Some of you thinking, Pastor, it's not just teenagers. I work with people like this at work. Okay? I, I know people like this at the job I have, right? Uh, but to the, to the pure, all things are pure, right? They're, they're innocent. They're not looking for something dirty. Uh, to the defiled and unbelieving, all things are defiled. It doesn't matter what you say to them. They're going to find a way to twist it and make it defiled. They're going to find a way uh, to, make it, to make it wrong. And, and uh, uh, verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being an abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. So uh, these are people who, uh, who, who say one thing with their mouth, live another thing with their life. And Paul, Paul's telling Titus, you've got to get them out of leadership roles at the church. Letter B, replace with faithful preachers. Replace with faithful preachers. So we're going to remove the false teachers, and we're going to replace with faithful preachers. There is a necessity to point out here that preaching is very important in the sight of God. Preaching. Not just getting up and teaching. Pastors need to teach, and they need to preach. There are times where the pastor needs to teach the Word of God. There are times where the pastor just needs to let, uh, rear back and preach. And preach. And teaching is aimed at the head. Preaching is aimed at the heart and is meant to step on your toes a little bit and motivate you. And Paul is telling uh, Timothy, or rather Titus here, that uh, a lot of this change is going to be brought about by your preaching. You're going at their, their wicked hearts, their sinful hearts. Now look with me at uh, chapter 1 and verse 6. And Paul is telling Titus, as you pick men to run these churches around the island, uh, there are some requirements here. If any be blameless... The husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or uh, uh, not accused of riot or unruly, so their children are well behaved. Uh, for a bishop must be blameless. A bishop is a pastor, as uh, the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, uh, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy. Temperate, holding fast the faithful word as uh, he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers or the deniers. Um, so Paul's saying, hey, look, go and find you men on the island that fit this bill and train them to replace, uh, re- replace the false teachers and replace them with faithful Preachers who will live a lifestyle that is uh, 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 professing godliness. So, uh, the uh, Titus's responsibility: go remove the bad teachers and replace with faithful teachers. Number three, uh, the church's regeneration. The church's regeneration. I love that word. It's a, a word we find here in Titus three five, uh, two five. Uh, uh, rather, uh, yeah, here in Titus we find that word regeneration, and it is a beautiful word. It means to be washed, to be cleansed, uh, 
to be made anew. I love that. So here we're going to see laid out for us. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 5, we find the word regeneration. In fact, let's go ahead and look at that. We'll look at it a couple of times tonight. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Hey, while I'm on that, you don't save your own soul. You just don't. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. If someone wants to tell you they're going to heaven because they're living a good life and they're a good person, take them to Titus 3.5. The Bible says right there, it's His mercy where He saves us. It's by His regeneration and uh, His uh, renewing us by the Holy Ghost. So, Titus uh, 3.5. But this regeneration goes well beyond just us uh, uh, having our sins forgiven. And Paul is going to try to take the model that they have on the island in a secular sense and remake it in a godly sense. Uh, let's look at a letter A and a B here. Notice, a new household. A new household. Now, we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, read down through verse 15. I'm going to pause in several places and uh, point out several things here. But before we begin the reading, I want you to picture what the setup there on the island was. You had men and women who were older, and they were uh, drunks. They were running around and uh, acting, living a debaucherous lifestyles. I picture the old man with a cigar between his fingers in one hand and a beer in the other hand and a filthy mouth just pouring out and a wife who, or a woman who's, who's uh, living a very loose lifestyle. And uh, Paul is saying, that is what you have. Let's teach you how to do being old as you age. Let's teach you how to do that the right way. He's going to lay that out here in a minute. And then you had a bunch of young men and uh, young women who were running around living in sexual uh, 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 immorality and doing wrong things. And uh, they were loose. Again, that was the reputation of Zeus. It had been baked into the culture there. The, the lying, the sexual improprieties that had been baked into the culture. So that was the norm where a boy did not keep himself chaste and pure. Uh, 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 for a chaste and pure girl. No, you had girls who were dressing provocatively and uh, drawing boys boys out who were lazy and who were not hardworking. And they were uh, uh, falling for these girls. And boys were seducing girls. And you had uh, uh, all kinds of bad behavior that way. And then you had servants who had learned through their uh, uh, teaching, biblical teaching, that no, they could not just be stepped on by their slave owner. That yes, they were a slave, but they were equal to the slave master. It was just a matter of an employment for them. And so there were uh, slaves who were uh, rebelling and disrespectful toward their slave owner and even uh, uh, stealing things away and keeping the, the money for themselves. And so Paul is going to say, listen, I'm not uh, saying that with the culture we need to throw all out all of the uh, responsibilities or we need to throw out the roles. We just need to do it a new way in Christ. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, as opposed to what? As opposed to drunken fools, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. So the men here are to be uh, clear-headed. They're to be measured in their decision-making. They're to be full of faith and love. And faithful to God and His Word in the house of God. And so, uh, 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 thank God that White Oak Baptist Church is blessed with a whole lot of men in our church that are that way. But we could go down to the mall and we could look at the, the perverted, dirty men sitting on the bench and find plenty of men that aren't that way, right, in our culture. Uh, so, thankful we're thankful for the men that are that way. And I just have to tell you, men that are here tonight... Make that your goal as you get older, to be a godly man, a Titus 2, 2 type man. And that as you age, you're respected not only um, uh, by the society around you, but you're respected by God and godly men around you. And that you can teach the younger men how they're to behave. Look at verse 3. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness... Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now, let me ask you here tonight, how many ladies here are willing to self-identify as an aged woman? Raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand. Okay? No, I'm, I'm, uh, 
Um, some of you are like, Pastor, I can't believe you even asked that. All right, if you raise your hand, I'm going to go around and you to tell me your age. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Um, aged women. Um, it says here that they are to uh, have a behavior that, is, that becometh holiness. Holiness. I love when I get around a lady who's been saved for a long time, and she has seasoned in her faith. She's mature in her faith. To a level where you get around her and you're like, I think I just need to go pray right now. <laughs> She's so godly that, man, man, i got to go get more godly myself. Um, um, the Bible says that they are to be that which becometh holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Does that mean to be kooky and weird and out of touch with the culture and society around you? No, it means to be set apart where you're walking with God. You're walking with God on such a level that you really don't want to have anything to do with the world. Right? We're not holy to be pious or to, to thumb our nose at people. We're holy so that we can have a, a, a better walk with God, a cleaned up walk with God. The Bible says that women, uh, the aged women, are to have a behavior that becometh holiness. They're not false accusers. Can I tell you something? Uh, this is to all of you here t- tonight. If you go to church long enough, somebody is going to approach you and say, Did you hear about brother or sister such and such? Did you hear that they fill in the blank? And you know what would be easy to do is run with the salacious rumor and believe it is gospel truth. The Bible tells us that, uh, uh, that something, an accusation, needs to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the best thing you can do is take someone who has a problem with somebody and say, hey, why don't we go talk to and get this straightened out? If Jason here comes to me and says, I saw Mark doing whatever, I don't need to go back here to Dave and say, Dave, did you hear what Mark did? Eric, did you hear what Mark did? No, I've got to take Jason by the arm and say, let's go talk to Mark. Right? But let's get this worked out. And uh, that's, that's the way this goes. And uh, here this verse says that they, uh, they don't believe false accusers. They have the wisdom to know that. They're not given them much wine. They're uh, teachers of good things. Verse 4, look here. And, and this is what I really want you to key in on here. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, Chase, keepers at home, good, well-behaved, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So what was the culture around them? There, yeah, there were married women. But they were dressing loose. They were acting loose. Right? They were uh, rebellious women with their husband, husbands. And, and Paul says there's a model. The aged women are to train the younger women on how to live. To those of you here tonight that do not consider yourself an aged woman, who in your life is an aged woman that's a godly woman who's teaching you how to do it? Who are you looking up to? Who are you learning from? You ought to be able to list off two, three, four people uh, uh, that are investing in you and teaching you. And by the way, those of us here tonight that are not aged men, who in your life is an aged man who you're learning from and, and, and getting wisdom from? I remember in Bible college they would tell us, if you have a problem, don't ask your roommate for advice because he's just as dumb as you are. Right? And I thought, well, I'm not dumb. What's he calling me dumb for? I found out later I was pretty dumb in college. Yeah, I was really, really dumb in college. Um, and I needed to go to someone that was older. Even now, if I need advice, I don't go to someone my age. I go to someone older than me. And, and I, I uh, get advice from someone who has more experience than I do. Someone who uh, is where I want to be one day in life in that area. So uh, we ought to, we ought to uh, make sure that we're, uh, we're going to those who are aged. And if you're here tonight and you have been seasoned in the Lord, you need to reach down to the generation below you and you need to make sure that you're investing in them. Paul is not telling Titus, do away with these relationships. He's saying, hey, let's do them, but let's do them 
the right way. So I want you to picture you have a man and a woman who's older and they're acting awful and that just flows down to the generation below that. And you have a, a young 20-something man and woman and they're misbehaving. And Paul says if the older crowd will do it right, they can begin to teach the younger crowd how to do it right. And now instead of having some lazy, loafing man who doesn't even go to work hook up with some loose woman and, and they're just uh, running amok with their lives, no, instead this lazy man becomes a hard-working man and then he uh, meets a girl through her father or through her parents and they end up together and uh, it's done in a way that's pure and right and in a way that pleases the Lord. But this continues, look down at verse number 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that uh, he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So live your lifestyle in a way where nobody can throw stones at you, young men. Live your lifestyle in a way that pleases the Lord. Now look at verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them uh, well in all things, uh, not, uh, not answering again, not purloining. That word purloining means to pillage or to embezzle or to steal. All right. So picture a servant out working in a field and he takes the crop in and he has this little bit stowed away behind the rock that he's going to sell later. That's that would be an old English word, purloining, all right? Embezzling goods or funds that don't belong to him. Not purloining, but showing all uh, good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Let me pause here and let me just address something that those who are not Christians throw stones at us Christians. Uh, uh, one, one big argument against the Bible is how can the Bible be a good book if it condones slavery? How many of you ever heard of this question asked? How, what in the world? The Bible condones or is okay with slavery? Slavery is awful. Well, let me, let me address that here real quick, okay? You never, ever, ever find in the Bible where God says it's okay to mistreat another human. Anywhere. In fact, in the realm of slaves and servants, you find that God is telling the slaves to work hard and to earn their keep, and that God tells the slave owners to treat them with respect and care. That's all you find. We get the image of slavery from our dark history. And we think of slave owners in the early days of our country that treated slaves like cattle. All right? uh, God never, ever, ever is for a human treating another human the way slave owners treated slaves in the early days of this country. He's never, ever for it. Now, another thing in context of slaves, you have to understand that in Jewish culture, every seven years, they were allowed to leave and be set free. And if you were a slave, it was because you chose to put yourself under those conditions. Now, slaves, what you would ask the next question would be, why would someone choose to be a slave? Well, you have to understand what the trade-off was. They were getting something for their slave, being a slave. If you came and worked for me, let's say I owned a business, you came and worked for me, I would give you a check, and you would have the liberty to take that check and buy uh, rent, right, or pay a mortgage and, and, and pay your bills. This, in essence, was just a simpler form of that. You come and work for me and do as I ask when I ask you to do it, and I'm going to give you a place to live at my cost, and I'm going to give you food to eat at my cost, and I'm going to make sure you have clothes to wear at my cost, all of your needs will be met in exchange for your labor for me. And so slavery was nothing more than a trade for the ability to live a, a, a safe life for your labor. And so slavery in the Bible was not the slavery we think of, the immoral slave of today. And again, one important thing to remember is that God is never for the mistreating or belittling of another human. In fact, God took a lot of... Uh, time in the Bible to correct those who abused and mistreated slaves and said, listen, if you're going to have a servant or a slave, treat them with respect and give them their due. So uh, those who say, well, the Bible is for slavery, how could that be? You have to understand that 
they they needed to define slavery uh, uh, more appropriately and, and more in a way that is uh, carries about it a better morality. But letter A, a new household. Then Paul backs out from this micro view of how human relationships on a uh, between the four walls of your home ought to work. And then he backs out and look at, looks at it from more of a, a bird's eye view or a macro view. Letter B, notice a new humanity. A new humanity. Hey, listen, if you've been saved, there's got to be some changes in your life. You can't just keep living the way that you live. Uh, the question is, well, do I have to quit my sin in order to get saved? No, you don't. All right. Let me just explain this real quick. All right. There's been a big debate about repentance in the Christian world for probably centuries or all the way back a long ways. All right. What is repentance? Repentance is the changing of the mind on what gets me to heaven. Right. Repentance is the changing of the mind. So I believe that if I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven and I change my mind and I say, no, 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 I've got to trust in Christ. To get me to heaven. Repentance is not changing what you do. It's changing what you believe. It's There's one sin that sends someone to hell. And that is the sin of unbelief. Or not believing in Jesus to save you. When I repent of what I believe that's wrong. And put my faith in Jesus. I'm saved. Now, a changing, a repentance of the mind. Ought to lead to a repentance or a changing of my actions. Right? If I really am now believing that Christ has redeemed me and saved me, I ought to be so overwhelmed by His love for me, my adoption into His family, Him making me a new creature, that, boy, I am spurned and motivated to do and be like Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, what about those that don't do that? I'm not going to be a fruit inspector. I'm not going there. I'm not going to look at the way someone lives their life and say, Well, I wonder if they even really got saved. It could be that they got saved, but they have just sat their stubborn tail down and said, I'm not going to grow. And God will have to deal with them uh, for that one day. But salvation is brought about not by a changing of my actions. You don't have to quit drinking to get saved. But I do believe that if you're drunk before you get saved and you put your faith and trust in Christ to save you and you want to quit drinking, the Holy Spirit has all the power in uh, uh, that, that beyond you can even understand to take that addiction away from you if He allows you. Titus chapter 3, verse number 3. Look there with me. It says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, uh, serving uh, diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which... He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, uh, I, I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, that these are good and profitable Unto men. So we've talked about this in here several times before, but just to rehash it quickly, you are saved not by good works, but you are saved to do good works. You don't do good works to get saved, but it ought to be that you want to do good works because you have been saved. It's pretty selfish to look up at the cross and know everything that God did for you, God in the form of Jesus did for you on the cross. And say, you know what, I'm too busy living my life to try to do anything back for him. That's, that's pretty selfish, right? That's pretty selfish. How many of you here have ever been in a selfish relationship like that? Where you are doing and doing and doing and doing, and the person you're doing for just kind of yawns and acts like they don't care? You just, it, it's vitriolic, is it not? You cross your arms, you look at them and say, how could you take so much that I'm giving you and, and, and just not really want to even acknowledge it or, or do back. Um, I'm thankful that in my marriage, if, if I have done wrong and I apologize, my wife accepts my apology. If I uh, clean the house for her, uh, she 
uh, is kind and gracious back to me and expresses gratitude for that. If she is kind to me and, and does things for me, like hangs my suit up after a long day on Sunday, glory, hallelujah, um, I can uh, look at her and show gratitude to her for that and maybe give her a shoulder rub. Amen? Uh, something there is, there is that return. God, God in heaven did not just, you know, clean your house for you one day. He died on the cross to save your soul from hell. That ought to motivate you to want to turn around and do some good works back for Him. Amen? And Paul is saying here to Titus, he's saying uh, that uh, because you and these have been saved, you ought to go out and do good works. So that brings us to one last question, and we'll wrap up uh, the sermon with this. Uh, This book, if it doesn't do anything else, it shows us Paul's model of ministry. And I want to show you that model of ministry uh, here throughout the book. All right, so this is more of a, uh, of a uh, instead of just going verse by verse, just kind of looking at the book as a whole. Let's look at the church's reach. The church's reach. Here's the question: How do we engage the culture? Just like the Cretans were people who lied all the time and were proud of it and known by it, we live in a culture that's. Filled with sin. I mean, Zeus may not be the hero, but Rihanna is. Right? Zeus may not be the hero, but for the younger crowd, they've got their 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 pop music stars and their hip-hop stars, and they've got their movie stars. And These people are not pushing anything good on our culture. They're not. So, how do we reach them? Well, let me give you, let me give you an A to B. Letter A, we should avoid. There are some things we should not do to reach the world around us. Below that, notice culture wars. We should avoid culture wars. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Listen. It ought to be said by the culture around us that Christians are amicable, they're agreeable, they're enjoyable to be around, they're generous, they're gentle, they're kind. Not that they're spiteful and hateful and mean and looking to ramrod Bible truth down your throat in the worst and meanest possible way to shake their long pharisaical finger in your face at every turn and tell you about everything that you're doing wrong in your life. That's not how we fix the world. If your spouse is not treating you right, how do you get that person to treat you right? Do you get them to treat you right by yelling at them and telling them how awful they are? That's not how you fix them. You don't go to war, right? When you tear your spouse down, you tear yourself down, right? And if you want to tear the culture down, they're not going to turn around and let you help them. Another way to put this, all right, let me just give you a more, let me, let me, let me, let me make it real narrow, all right? Let's say that I had a heart to reach those that struggled with the sin of homosexuality. You know how I'm not going to reach them? By going to a gay parade in New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles and holding up a big sign that says, You are an abomination to God! I'm not going to reach them that way. I'm just not. They're not going to turn around and say, oh, I am? What do I do to stop being an abomination to God? No, they're probably going to throw something at me and call me a bunch of names and and tell me I'm number one, right? So you don't fix the culture by throwing stones at those that are uh, the worst among us. Now, should you take a stand for what's right? Yes, but you, you can be gentle about it. And in fact, that's the word found here in verse number two. Uh, they're, they're, you're not to be a brawler. You're to be gentle, showing meekness unto all men, even the worst among you. So we should avoid cultural wars. On the other side of that spectrum, we should avoid cultural worldliness. We should avoid cultural worldliness. So you have two ends of the pendulum. You have... The go to a gay parade and hold up in a sign that calls everyone an abomination and, and throw, you know, throw every mean insult you can at them. But then you have the other end of the coin that says, you gotta be like them to reach them. How do you reach the bar at the drunk? Well, 
you go to the bar and you dress like a drunk and you, you get a drink and you drink it with them and you tell them about Jesus. That's not how you do it either. You've got to avoid that. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also, notice the past tense verb here, were. That means we used to be. We're not anymore. We're sometimes foolish, disobedient, uh, uh, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Chapter 3, verse 3, look at verses 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Knowing that he that is such uh, he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. This is someone who has a perverted idea of how to reach the lost. They have even become a heretic over it. And uh, this is how close to the world can I get in order to reach the world? And that's not the way you do it. You reach the world not by being like the world. You reach the world by being like Jesus. And then when they're sick of what the world has to offer, they will come. Uh, to you, So we should avoid culture wars. One end of the spectrum where we act so high and mighty and we, we, we preach down to everybody else. The other end is where we try to be like them and both of those are wrong. Uh, so we should avoid those. We should attract. We should attract through our walk. Through our walk. Look at chapter 2 in verse number 7. I'm almost done. Look at chapter 2, verse number 7. It says, in all good things, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Uh, Look with me at chapter 3, verse 8. This is the faithful saying in these things. I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be, look here, careful, careful to maintain Good works. So uh, how is it that we're going to attract the world around us? By living a consistent life of doing the good works that we have been called to do. By doing the good works we have been called to do. One day when I was uh, at work uh, in college, I was working a a job uh, in Chicago driving a forklift. It was a, a cross docking uh, cross-dock truck job, and uh, in and out of trucks in the cold. And, uh, you know, we had a crazy schedule and all that. And I remember one day I was just in the worst mood possible. Uh, I was exhausted, not, not getting a lot of sleep, not eating real healthy. I was just, I was Mr. Grinch. I was just a grouch. And I was um, uh, kind of being sharp with my words with just about everybody. And I remember walking in the cold. I can take you where I was. I, I, in my mind, it's just, it's, it's crystallized like it was yesterday. But I was wearing all my thick coat and coveralls, and, and I had soot on my face from working, and my cheeks were probably wind-burned, and, and I was just in a very bad mood. And I had just finished unloading the truck I was doing and had turned the paperwork into the, into the, 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 uh, the dock, uh, the, the, the shed there. And I'm walking over to take my lunch break, and just a scowl on my face and in my heart, and I felt God say to me in my spirit, He said, Why would any of the lost people here want what you have. How are you any better than them with this nasty attitude that you have? And I I walked into the area. I was freezing cold. I walked into that warm area, went down to the bathroom, and I washed my hands, and I looked myself in the mirror, and I said, I'm not being a witness with my walk. I'm just not being a witness with my walk. Listen, I understand that you're not a robot, that you're going to have your ups and downs, but the world around you needs to see someone who is consistently living the Christian life so that when they are tired of what they have, they know there's something different about you. I think of um, the girl who came Sunday with Ben Salinas who looked at him and said, Are you a Christian? And he said, yes, I am. Are you? And she said, no, I'm an atheist. And because of his walk at work, she came Sunday and heard the gospel. Now, that's what we're talking about here. How are we going to reach the lost? Well, through our walk. And then lastly, notice, through our witness. Through our witness. It's not good enough to live a life that's right. You also have to open your mouth and tell people what's right. When the time is right. Look at Titus 1 verse 9 and we'll finish with this verse. Holding fast the faithful word, word, 
as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers or the deniers or the, the, the doubters. Um, you're going to meet people in your life who want to know a little bit more about your faith, and you need to be able to open up and tell them. You need to be able to answer every man according to uh, the, the hope that lieth in you, the Bible tells us. So it's not just with their walk. We call that lifestyle evangelism. I'm not against lifestyle evangelism. I think your lifestyle ought to evangelize. But I think that your mouth's got to evangelize too. You've got to be able to open your lips and tell people that Jesus loves them and he wants to save them. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to do that. Well, can you invite them to church? Can you take them a gospel track? Can you pick up one of these paid in full books that we hand out to visitors that is a lengthy explanation of the gospel and give that to them? Uh, we can do our part to make sure that we are attracting people to the reach of the church with the way we walk and work and then with our witness. And that was Paul's model. Don't go to war with the culture. No. Show the culture how to do it. And when the culture has chewed them up and spit them out, they'll come crawling to you because they'll see that what you have is way better. Live your marriages, raise your children, be an employer or an employee in a way that is much deeper and richer than the way the world does it. And when they're running to the divorce court and they see that you've been married for 30 years to the same person and you love your spouse or that your children are growing up and you have an honorable relationship with them or that you are respectful toward the boss when they're spiteful toward the boss, then they'll come to you and they'll want what you have. And we'll be able to, over time, Turn the culture back to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was, uh, that's the book of Titus. I hope you got a lot out of it tonight. God that cannot lie, as opposed to Zeus who did nothing but lie. Amen. Thankful that we are to stand for truth in a culture of lies. Let's stand to be dismissed tonight. Next week we'll be in the book of Philemon. Go ahead and read ahead. Do a little bit of studying and be prepared. Let's be dismissed with prayer. Uh, and we'll go. Brother John Sanchez, close us in prayer.